This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Jolly, bringing the best of my Times radio show. You can listen live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1, on your DAB radio, on your smart speaker, or download the Times radio app. But uh, thanks very much for downloading the podcast. In fact, huge numbers of you are downloading the podcast right now. Maybe you're going off on your holidays and you're taking Red Box with you. If you've only just recently discovered us, we've got a huge archive of stuff that it's worth scrolling back through, particularly if you've got, you know, long train or plane journeys over the summer. Loads of stuff to look forward to. Coming up on today's episode, no PMQs today because MPs are on holiday. So instead, we've got a very special edition of PMQs, PMQs. Cues to PM. Patrick Maguire, join me. You putting your questions to Patrick Maguire and I in lieu of PMQs. Also today, Daniel Greenberg is the Parliamentary Standards Commissioner. He's basically in charge of ticking off MPs who break the rules. We'll hear from him as well. But first, as we always do, let's have a wade through the news with the Columnist panel. The Columnists on Times Radio. Yes, it's that time of the morning where we take a look at the day's news. Normally with Albert, we haven't got an alley, but we have got a Bert. Uh, good morning, Robert Crampton. Hi, Matt. How are you, Robert Crampton? I'm fine. I'm sitting in front of Selby outside of Costa. You're in Selby? Yeah. Guess why? Are you reporting? Uh, interviewing. Interviewing. Very good. Yeah. Are you meeting a uh, member of the in-betweeners? Yeah, I am. The youngest one. Very good. You haven't I met him yet? Get him to, do you want me to try and get him to come on the radio later? Yeah, that'd be great. Yeah, love oh, to have him on. Yeah. I'll ask him. I'll see if he's around. Uh, might be about 12-ish. 12-ish. Yeah, he can come on midday. Yeah, do that. Cool. Yeah, lovely. Right, see what good, he says. good to do our planning meetings on the air. Uh, Kim Mather, yeah. obviously, is the new <laughs> Labour MP in Selby, which is why Robert's there. And on the line, we've also got uh, former head of Channel 4 News, Dorothy Bird. How are you, Dorothy? Very good indeed, thank you. I'm in Cambridge at Murray Edwards College. I know, which are always, there's always like nice, the sun's always out, it's nice tweety birds, it's always nice where you are, uh, uh, over in Cambridge. Right, now, one of the things I want to ask you about, uh, off, the, off the back of the Nat West versus uh, Nigel Farage furore, uh, and clearly Alison Rose has uh, uh, now resigned, does this draw a line under, does this mark a shift, do you think, Robert, in... This idea of businesses making moral judgments, whether that's companies put, you know, rebranding their logos with the pride flag, whether that's Ben and Jerry's taking political stances. Does this draw a line of that? That actually businesses might step back a bit and just say, actually, why don't we just evolve, you know, deliver 
products to our customers and make money rather than make trying to make moral judgments? Uh, I think it probably draws a line under it for banks. Uh, I'm not sure it will for businesses. I'm not sure it should for businesses. I think businesses, are, you know, are, are, on occasions are quite right to uh, uh, virtue signal, if you like. But banks are, are not allowed to divulge <laughs> their customers' financial details to the media. And uh, it will surely draw a line under that, yeah. Um, what do you think, Dorothy? Should we draw a distinction between banks should give everyone banking, but other companies, Betty Jerry's, can make ethical judgments? Well, I think it's in the interest of business and the consumer for businesses to talk about how they're trying to be ethical, so long as it's not greenwashing. But um, this was a, a, a serious mistake by NatWest. They should not have talked about somebody's bank account. It's a great shame as well, though, because... Alison Rose is actually a really good person in many ways. She's been a huge champion of women entrepreneurs in Britain. And one thing I hope is that just as politicians who did something wrong are allowed back into the world after a bit, that Alison Rose will not be cast into the outer darkness, but will be able to play a, a full role in public life, particularly to do with women and entrepreneurship, um, when she's had a suitable period of rest because she made a mistake. Everybody makes a mistake sometimes. I suppose actually, unusually with this sort of thing, there's a, when the, normally when there's a clamour uh, for the chief executive to resign, mm. uh, it's because someone you know lower down the food chain has done something wrong, or a culture, or a, or yeah. a systems failure. But actually, the bottom line here, Robert, is she personally um, mucked up? Yes, I think it's a really serious mistake. Uh, I mean, Nigel Farage. I don't really agree with the word that comes out of the man's mouth, but he's he's not some. Uh, uh, he's not uh, to. Uh, oh well, the first thing that Keir Mather needs to do in Selby is try and uh, improve the phone signal. Um, uh, there um, th th is it is an important distinction, isn't it, Dorothy? It's not that the, the um, Alison Rose is taking, you know, carrying the can for the institution. Is that she personally made a terrible mistake by discussing a a customer's personal banking details with somebody from the BBC? Yeah, she did. She made a serious mistake and it was probably inevitable that she should have to resign. Uh, as I say, I, I, I think everybody makes a mistake sometime. You know, I do agree that we've got to ensure that the law and the regulation that somebody is allowed a bank account if they don't have any criminal or serious finding against them uh, should be upheld. Um, Nigel Farage has the right to a bank account and he has the right to privacy. But I don't think this should put us off uh, generally businesses talking about ethics. I think they're two separate things. Um, well, uh, um, it was interesting now because I do, I do just wonder whether other companies might step back. This idea of drawing up ethical judgments on customers, in turn, not least because everyone now knows about these um, 
public access requests that you can write to any company and say, I want to know what you've been you've been saying about me. And actually, you know, we might this might be the start of more rails like this, uh, Robert. Yeah, is the reception any better in Selby now? Marginally, I would say. We'll persevere with yeah. it for a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I was, I was saying that I think Farage, I don't really agree with the word the man says, but he, he was the architect of a referendum with 15 million people voting for. He's not a political extremist. I mean, he's, he's out, uh, he might be not to everyone's taste, uh, but there's no way that he's, it's a really serious error to, to think that, to cast him into the darkness because you don't, you don't even think he's politics. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, it, yeah, I mean, clearly there's massive risk. There is reputational risk in taking these judgments, as, um, uh, as other, other businesses have shown. Well, you, uh, just, you just can't, yeah, you just can't do it. It's like a doctor or a priest or a lawyer. Yeah. You, you, you don't do it. Yeah. Um, let's move on and talk about uh, Rishi Sunak's uh, latest intervention. He tweeted suddenly yesterday, apparently, I don't quite know what prompted it. This is what we're up against. This is in relation to a Daily Mail story about um, lawyers acting uh, on behalf of uh, asylum seekers. So this is what we're up against. The Labour Party, a subset of lawyers, criminal gangs, they're all on the same side, propping up a system of exploitation that profits from getting people to the UK illegally. I have a plan to stop it. And then it followed it up uh, with a thread. Um, Dorothy, you squeamish at all about the Prime Minister lumping together the Labour Party lawyers and criminal gangs all being on the same side? I mean, this was like one of those middle-of-the-night tweets that we used to get from Nadine Doris, but he sent it during the day. Does he not have people who stop him sending tweets like this? It was appalling. I mean, it was appalling towards the Labour Party, but also a subset of lawyers makes it sound like there's some whole type of lawyer, like commercial lawyer or whatever, who, who aren't engaged in criminal activity. Um, when we know, and have always known, I've exposed this years ago, that there are uh, some lawyers who uh, are helping people to commit um, criminal acts or helping people to lie about themselves. But I I thought this was very poor and it bodes ill for the election, doesn't it? Yeah. Are we going to get, because we've had some of this from Labour, are are they just going to slag each other in this disgraceful fashion? Has it not been bad enough for us as voters that we've had to put up with the degradation of politics? Is it going to get worse? Really, I would counsel Rishi Sunak against stooping like this. I mean, I wonder, did he read it? Was well, there some person's clever idea? It doesn't sound like him, does it? Uh, yeah, uh, that's the other thing. And the thing that actually really struck me reading the, the, the Twitter thread was it was all, uh, I have a plan to stop it. I've recently passed laws. Yeah. I've secured the largest ever. I've negotiated a deal. I've, in- I've increased raids by 50%. I mean, has he personally? I mean, that's I mean, that's literally illegal, isn't it, for the Prime Minister to be increasing the number of police operations. Um, uh, what did you make of it, Robert? Yeah, it's not edifying, is it? But it shows, it shows he's panicked, I guess. It shows, I mean, it's electioneering. Uh, you, you, you take what you think is the opponent's weak spot and you, you go for it. Uh, I don't like it. The public doesn't like it. But I think we've got to get used to it. I think we're going to see a lot more of this over the next year. Uh, they perceive that 
the Labour Party on, you know, weak territory with the migration small boats crisis. Uh, and Starmer's a lawyer and so forth, and he's trying to guilt my association. It's not nice, but yeah. it's politics. Now, here's some exciting news for people of a certain age. NME is coming back. It's returning to print after five years of being online only. Music journalist Matt Charlton. You used to work there, didn't you, Matt? Um, I freelanced there, so I was a regular uh, columnist with them for a while before they stopped doing columns. <laughs> I <laughs> One of my early journalistic wins was I got some words in uh, NME after I went to a, uh, I think, Mendip District Council planning meeting, which was discussing whether or not Glastonbury could go ahead. Uh, oh, wow. And I, with a friend, yeah, we, we filed from the council meeting for NME, which is very exciting. Um, yeah. It's the closest I got. So, uh, so it went five years ago. It went online only. They went free, yeah. didn't it, first of all? And then it went online only. And now it's coming back. How is it coming back and why? It's coming back as a bi-monthly um, magazine. Now, bi-monthly can mean two things. It either means twice a month or every two months. In this case, it's every two months. And it's coming back as a source of prestige collector's publication as opposed to the music paper it used to be. Um, and so that means it's going to be a limited run and it's going to be, as, as I said, a collector's item and um, not widely available either. And I think I'm getting the feeling they're just testing the water at the moment just in case it does work and they can roll that out a bit more. So the idea is it'd be more sort of like a, a gl glossy monthly, although it was only, yeah. only over two months, with like big interviews and features and, and that sort of thing rather than, you know, a row that happened at this gig or a spat between two bands. Exactly. Um, and also it's going to be, uh, as you said, glossy collectors, sort of more along the lines of, well, Rolling Stone UK uh, launched oh, about just over a year ago now. And that's also a bi-monthly thing. And that's also a, a sort of thing that you can have on your shelf. It's for the audio file. You know, it can it can sit alongside your vinyl yeah, yeah. Um, as a collection as well. So I think that, yeah, that's the idea at the moment anyway. Um, Dorothy, were you ever a big, a big reader of Enemy? I wasn't cool enough. Um, but maybe <laughs> Nobody read Enemy was cool bit. enough. That was the point. You just hey, pretended hey, you were. I was cool. <laughs> well, you, well, maybe I could start reading it and then I would finally become cool at the age of 71. So I, I quite <laughs> like the idea. Also, this idea of actually having a physical thing in your hand to read mm. and enjoy and look at the layout and the design and all that, as opposed to just endlessly scrolling. It's, there's some appeal in that as well, isn't there, Dorothy? Oh, definitely. And I still like to read even newspapers as newspapers, and I like to read magazines as magazines and books as books. I I, I think it's really enjoyable you can have a lovely magazine by the side of your bed and enjoy the gorgeous pictures and now learn to be cool <laughs> robert uh, i'm not sure how uh, robert are you there yeah i'm here do you like enemy i never read enemy i read sound and i was, I was very big on smash hit because uh, i'm quite shallow i love smash hit but uh I wish enemy all the best. It's great news for uh, those of us who... You, my views on modern technology are well-known, Matt. <laughs> and uh, if print is making a comeback, it's good news for journalists and for uh, Luddites. And great, vinyl's, come, vinyl's back and tapes are back and now the enemy's back. Brilliant. Um, uh, Robert, Michael, uh, Mike's texting saying, can you ask Robert why he hates Selby's mobile infrastructure and Elton John so much? <laughs> 
I don't hate his mobile infrastructure, but obviously it's not working from where you are. It's all, uh, I can hear you perfectly well. Doesn't that mean it's all half working? Yeah, but it's the wrong uh, half, unfortunately. It's you're, the wrong half. <laughs> yeah, you're slightly. Yeah, you're slightly crackly. Um, uh, Matt, when when will this uh, enemy appear? And do we know anything about what's going to be in it? Um, it's coming out imminently, actually, and um, they've published a few um, hit bits from it, I would say. So they're going into the big in-depth interviews, the long-form writing. Um, what I really, really want them to do, and this is just, a, 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 I guess, an opinion, is I want them to get back to being a bit cheeky. I want them to get back to being a bit acerbic, having an editorial voice that used to, it used to challenge musicians as well as laud them um, and keep it all a bit humorous. It used to have an element of smash hits about it, actually, a bit of a sense of humor. And I really hope in doing a print version again that they find a bit more of a editorial voice that isn't scared to challenge the musicians as, as well as celebrate them. Dorothy Byrne there, former head of Channel 4 News, and Robert Crampton from The Times. And of course, you can read Robert in The Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next is my chat with Daniel Greenberg. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Red Box podcast. Now, Daniel Greenberg, at the beginning of this year, took over the Parliamentary Standards Commissioner, and I caught up with him to ask him about the job. Good morning. Good morning. Is politicians' behaviour getting worse or are they more likely to get caught? Um, I think one of the things that has happened in recent years is that expectations have risen, particularly in relation to how a modern workplace functions. And I think it is generally everybody regards this as a good thing that parliament has taken a very hard look at itself and now expects itself to function as a fully modern professional workplace which is a safe working environment for everybody so i don't honestly know and i don't think one can measure what has happened to standards over decades and over years but what i think has happened is that expectations have risen and i think everybody welcomes that it used to be the case well, I've, I've been covering what's been going on in parliament for almost 20 years now it used to be the case that the most egregious examples of bad behavior whether it was lobbying or money scandals or sex scandals or lying scandals were 
actually, often, you know, the, the Standards Commissioner was looking at largely unknown, low-profile backbenchers. It seems to me that these days, senior MPs, ministers, even prime ministers, seem to think that the rules don't apply to them. Um, well, of course, one can look at it in a positive way and say, isn't it good that we have a system, uh, a parliamentary code of conduct and a parliamentary behaviour code that does apply to everybody. And I am instructed by the House of Commons to look at all complaints that are made, whether they be into the behaviour, as you say, of a backbencher who's just joined or a senior member of the House who has been there for, for 40 years, a cabinet minister. It makes absolutely no difference. Everybody gets, the complaints get treated in the same way, the same criteria, the same principles are applied with the same rigour. And I think that's a really positive thing for our parliament to be proud of. Are the days of the, the sort of the good chap system, the, everyone was a, was a good egg and they knew the rules and they abided by them and if they, they didn't, they, they took their, their punishment properly. Is that, is that good chap system, if it ever existed, over now? Well, I, I think if it ever existed, I think the proof that it is either over or non-existent is, is in my appointment. The fact that an, an officer of the House for the last 20 or so years has been appointed by the House and I am told by the House that I am to look into in allegations of breaches of the Code and that I'm to apply the principles, I'm to look at the principles of standards in public life, openness, honesty, integrity, the other principles. I'm required by the House to apply those equally to everybody in accordance with the code. And I think that is proof, um, to answer your question, that if it was ever simply left to complete self-regulation, that is not what the House wants now. Of course, the House is always going to be a self-regulating body and must be, but they have asked an independent official, now me, to help them, to support them in applying criteria and principles. And again, as I say, I think that's something Parliament can and should be proud of. I know you said in the past that the reputation of politicians was dangerously low, what do you think is the danger that follows from that? What is the risk of the reputation of politicians being, being, I mean, not that they've ever been, they've always been about as popular as estate agents and journalists, but what is the risk inherent in the public having such a low regard for politicians? Um, the rule of law risk is simply disengagement. If trust sinks to a, to a certain level, then some of the public, large sections of the public potentially just turn off and reckon there's no point engaging with the political system because they've lost trust in politicians. Now that would be unbelievably dangerous and obviously dangerous for the rule of law and it would also be so completely undeserved because the vast majority of members of parliament are strongly committed to the values of public life, the standards of public life, to the code of conduct, and to giving their, their constituents phenomenal service. So the lack of trust is really dangerous, and it's really undeserved. Not in every case, of course, the, the, and that's why I'm asked to look into allegations of breach of the code. But we need, I think, to find ways for 
the positive side, some of the narrative to include, some of the positive efforts to which many, many members of parliament go to serve their constituents with selflessness, with integrity, and with, with, with commitment and devotion, frankly. When you, when you say it's dangerous to the rule of law, do you mean that, that the public look at politicians breaking the rules and they think, well, if they're doing it, I... I can break the rules. I can break the law. Do you mean is that what you mean that the sort of the social contract is threatened by by senior politicians being seen to 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 break the rules? Look, that is one danger, Matt. I agree with that. That is one of the dangers. As I say, for me, the, the more pressing danger in terms of my role is the danger that it leads to just disillusionment and disengagement. Um, and when it comes to uh, the senior politicians we've seen recently, is it more problematic, is it more dangerous to that social contract, to the rule of law, that, for instance, Boris Johnson has crossed your desk in a way that was unthinkable for for most previous prime ministers? Um no, I, I don't think it. I don't think it does really make a difference. I think what is important, as I said before, is that people understand the code of conduct and the behaviour code apply to everybody. The code applies to all MPs equally, whether they be a senior cabinet minister or the most recently joined backbencher, and the behaviour code applies to everybody who works in the parliament in the parliamentary system. I think that's the key message. Um, one of the things that I think might justifiably annoy the public is there is this system and you investigate and then a committee of MPs uh, looks at things and, and recommends uh, a punishment if wrongdoing has been found uh, to take place. But a thing that's happened quite frequently later, lately, whether it was Boris Johnson, David Warburton, Owen Patterson before that, is that they they quit rather than accept their punishment. Doesn't that make a mockery of the whole system? The, the, the MPs sort of carry on doing whatever they like, and then when caught, they sort of walk away, apparently without any repercussions. Well, obviously, I, I'm not going to comment on any individual cases, and you wouldn't expect me to. Um, I think what matters here is that there are sanctions available to the House by which it can self-regulate in an effective way. And there are those sanctions. It, clearly, it is open to a member who feels that they might be suspended. It is open to them to resign, and that will be a matter for them in each individual case. I mean, one of the sanctions, I know one of the few sanctions available if people do quit is removing their access to Parliament, removing their pass. Do you think it should go further than that? Maybe look at their, their pensions, for example? I think that's a, a really complicated issue. I think it's something that one would need to look at very, very carefully. Um, I do think, uh, perhaps I can be uh, try to be helpful and say, I do think these are conversations and discussions we should be having, but not in a knee-jerk way, certainly not in a sort of instant reaction to a particular case that, that, that hits the headlines. It's something we should be considering carefully, and perhaps it would help to say that there are a number of bodies in relation in Parliament and in relation to Parliament that are constantly considering the landscape of regulation, how we can simplify it, how we can make it more effective. Uh, the Committee on Standards and Public Life have said useful and very helpful things recently. There are a number of bodies that are going to think about 
all of these issues. What you've mentioned is something we should think about. Um, certainly not something to sort of leap at as an instant as an instant answer. But, but yeah, the, 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 I wasn't sort of trying to get you to sort of say something about a particular MP. But this idea that if if you are found to have, have broken the rules, and we should expect our politicians to behave properly, and uh, you quit and walk away rather than face, you know, the the day to day punishment, if you like, looking at the package of support and perks available to former politicians is is something that you think we should look at. Yeah, look, I'm not going to say yes or no to withdrawal of support of that kind because, yeah. as I say, I think it's complicated. Do I think it's something that should be looked at in the round? Yes, as part of the landscape review of self-regulation by the House. Um, one thing I wanted to ask, you talked about making Parliament a safer, more modern yeah. workplace for everyone who works there. There aren't yeah. many workplaces where alcohol is served routinely, particularly in bars. I mean, one thing, even in restaurants, but in having a bar on the premises. Do you think that the alcohol should still be sold on the parliamentary estate? Again, I'm, I'm not going to say yes or no. That's clearly a matter for the House to decide for itself. What I will say is it is one of the things that clearly many members of Parliament are thinking about for themselves. I think the behavior I, I think the attitude to alcohol in the workplace has changed throughout as you say throughout all workplaces it has changed over the decades when i joined the public service about 35 years ago it was common for wine to be served at internal lunches it was it was it was a very common thing and it doesn't generally happen today so i think it is something that members of parliament are looking at for themselves uh, some different people have different views have there been problems, behaviour problems, that have been linked to alcohol? Of course there have, and therefore it is something that, that again, um, requires to be kept under review, and individual MPs obviously will decide what works for them. Um, just finally, you, I see you've been in the job uh, now for uh, for a few months. I wonder if overall, you know, in, I suppose most of the time you're focusing on on the, the wrongdoing rather than the, the right doing, if you like, Overall, is your impression of politicians uh, gone up or, or down in your own estimation in the last few months? Uh, both. I've, 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 um, I've, encouraged, I've, I've encountered uh, some behaviour that has actually exceeded... I, I thought I knew politicians quite well. I've encountered some behaviour that has exceeded my expectations in the way that they devote themselves. There are, in, there are some MPs who are just quite amazing in their selfless devotion to their constituents. And yes, I have occasionally been shocked, been disappointed by behaviour that I thought fell below below the standards. But one of the things I've tried to do in, in the time that I've been in this role is to engage with as much of the public as possible to go into universities, schools, other forums, and talk to uh, members of the public about what they perceive really beyond the those are stereotypes or the headlines, what they perceive in their politicians. And they have really, I've really been encouraged by the fact that everybody seems to recognise that there is so much positive as well as the, 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 rightly, the, the right focus, the media rightly focus on disappointing behaviour and we must have no tolerance for misbehaviour in the workplace. But there is a great deal to be proud of. And I've actually been very encouraged about how ready 
the public are to hear about the good stories and to join with MPs in sharing best practice and encouraging best practice to become more and more widespread so that the inspiring stories can become more common and the disappointments hopefully will become fewer. <laughs> Daniel Greenberg there, the Parliamentary Standards Commissioner. Now, normally on a Wednesday, we would bring you PMQs unpacked, but MPs were away for the summer recess, so we thought for a bit of fun we'd have PMQs, Qs to PM, Patrick Maguire, normally here for PMQs if Tim Shipman's away. Anyway, Patrick Maguire, ask him anything. PMQs unpacked on Times Radio. Order, order. I call Matt Chorley and Patrick Maguire. Yeah. 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 So normally on a Wednesday we'd have PMQs unpacked, but there's no PM, there's no Prime Minister. Uh, so instead we've got our very own PM, it's Patrick Maguire. Ah, thank you very much. It's a, a you know, a co- coincidence of the initials that... Uh, <laughs> It's false. This this was act of o- well, I was often picked up on when I was at school actually, and I won at our leavers dinner. Most likely to win, be the next prime minister, which was a terribly worded thing because David Cameron was obviously prime minister at the time. So really, I should have been, ter- you know, saying I was going to be prime minister. But like Penny Morden, you could run on PM for PM. Yeah, exactly. But but you know, the punchline to that story is uh, I got up and everybody booed me. So. <laughs> uh, wow! It was a real uh, it was a real eye opening moment about my the esteem in which my schoolmates. Uh, character building uh, yeah actually I sort of it inspired a sort of quite an attractive defiance in me now, uh, now look at you Times columnist Times radio senior political correspondent yeah look at me now guys look, look at me now. now look at you now uh, you know that producer Erin didn't get the PM thing until quite late on this morning she can understand why we're just having you in to do questions <laughs> <laughs> she just always asked Patrick Maguire Anyway, uh, so uh, yeah, if you want to get if you want to get in touch, uh, text us eight seven trouble two. Start message with the word times. Martin's been in touch. Uh, apropos of nothing, Patrick, who would you bet on in a cage fight, Lee Anderson or John Prescott in his prime? Uh, Prescott, yeah. only only because Prescott. And I, look, if Lee Anderson has been trained in the Queensbury rules, uh, he can get in touch and correct me. But Prescott was a trained boxer. Was he? Yeah, well, uh, instead of an amateur boxer, on the... On, on the ships. On the ships, yeah, yeah. And remember when... Sorry, I was going to say, remember when Anthony Eden resigned? Obviously, we don't remember that, because <laughs> when Anthony Eden resigned, he went on a long cruise to yeah. New Zealand to recuperate, and yeah. John Prescott was one of the stewards. And was obviously, he? Cause that, because that voyage took about a million years in those days, yeah. and they, they had nothing to understand. How they do the entertainment was John Prescott would get up every night and box his colleagues or box other passengers... And uh, yeah, Eden presented the um, the awards. Well, do you know what that that alone has justified this uh, thin feature? Justified my justified my salary. Justified this feature. <laughs> so come on, then. we've got some people to actually put some questions. We're going to go question number one from Carol Smith. Carol, are you there? I am. Morning, Carol. How are you? Hi, afternoon. Carol. I'm afternoon. well. Good morning. Good morning. Afternoon. It's afternoon, Carol. Oh, it is. So it is. Thank you, pardon. Where in the world are you, Carol? I'm in Ryslip. Oh! Yes. Not uh, South Ryslip. Uh, Ryslip Manor. Oh, very nice. Near the, near the Lido? Very near, yes. Yeah, have you, you ever gone the railway? I have. Ah, uh, good. What very do you do? Exciting. What do you do, Carol? I'm retired. Of course you are. What did you used to do, Carol? Work for British Airways. Oh, did you? Oh, because you're, you, you're near I the did. airport. Near Heathrow Airport. I, well, no, I had to drive, unfortunately. Well, no, I didn't think you just walked walked out together. So, Carol, <laughs> what's your question? My question is, in light of the result of the Uxbridge and South Ryslip by-election, 
What are your views on the Mayor of London apparently continuing with the implementation of ULEZ? Good question. Really it's very good and timely question. Here, really strong views mm. here in the constituency, and I think there'll be real anger if ULEZ goes ahead here. So I think there are a few things to consider here, Carol. The first is, obviously, this decision might be taken out of Sadiq Han's by the courts, because currently some of the outer London councils that are run by the Tories are challenging this decision to expand it to the outer London boroughs in the courts. So this may well be that Sadiq Khan is appearing to commit himself to expanding ULEZ to the outer boroughs in the knowledge that the courts might overturn it. So that's one thing to consider. The second thing to consider is Sadiq Khan, despite the pressure from uh, Keir Starmer, was probably always going to take this position. One, because he has made so much of his commitment to cleaning up London's air. He's just written a book about London's clean air called Breathe. He says he uh, was diagnosed with asthma as an adult because of London's dirty air. So it was always unlikely that Sadiq Khan was going to put his hands up after Starmer came round and said, listen, you've got to rethink this and say, OK, it's a fair cop, I'm going to rip up Ulez entirely. I don't think that was ever going to happen. Um, and the other reason there is he... You know, Sadiq Khan is a politician with his own mandate, his own regional and national profile. So I don't think he was ever going to roll over for Keir Starmer because that's not the relationship Keir Starmer and his mayors have, and that's going to be a well. Famously, I mean, his relationship with with uh, Andy Burnham, Andy Burnham is pretty bad. Uh, obviously, he uh, basically sacked the mayor of the northeast fairly recently, and yeah. uh, the North of Time Mayor Jamie Driscoll. There's a lot of tensions now with Anna Sarr in Scotland over the two, over the welfare thing. Some tensions with Mark Drakeford in Wales as yeah, well. Exactly. So regional Labour leaders are always going to assert their independence, and Sadiq Khan has a number of political reasons uh, to stick with what he's doing, reulers. And then there's a practical reason as well, which is it's part of the Transport for London funding settlement as well, so he has to uh, remain committed uh, to that. So for a number of reasons, most of them political, I don't think it was ever likely that Sadiq Khan was, gonna, was going to change his mind. Although, let's see what the court says when it considers that challenge uh, from the... Uh, from the uh, from the London at uh, the outer London councils, what might happen, and what we're likely to hear from Sadiq Khan and Keir Starmer, is much more emphasis on, you know, uh, car scrappages. You know, we'll give you money to change your cars, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, and I think both of them will much rather be in that space, talking about how one how minimal the impact of the charge will be once it's in there. Uh, City Hall are convinced that only ten uh, percent of cars in outer London will even pay it, and. Uh, yeah. Um, the, other, I mean, the other thing is the, the, the route to uh, Keir Starmer becoming Prime Minister and actually the route to uh, Sadiq Khan being re-elected next year does not necessarily run through Uxbridge and South Ryslip. The fact, you know, the, 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 it wasn't part of the plan for Labour to win it necessarily. Uh, you know, they both can win without winning in those particular bits of London. Well, something I've heard a lot from Labour people over the past week, though, is a feeling that had the Tories chosen a better candidate and run a very aggressive we are the party of motorists in outer London campaign playing on Boris Johnson's so-called donut strategy i.e. turn the outer boroughs blue and don't worry about swinging the uh, solid Labour inner London boroughs then you're Tories would possibly be onto a winner yeah, yeah. precisely and also because they've changed the electoral system to first past the post so you know yeah. you can run Sadiq relatively close and, uh, and, and still win Has that answered your question Cal? That's all very well. <laughs> <laughs> Go on. And 
all of an, an answer from someone in the Westminster bubble. But you don't understand how people feel here, do you? Oh, no, 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 no. I mean, I, I, mean, I certainly do. I, I completely get that why... That was all, you I, know, lovely and... Um, well, I suppose it's when, it's when, because Sadiq Khan oversees all of London and Keir Starmer's running for the whole country, they're essentially going to make a calculation as to how cross they can let people in some of London get versus their overall benefits. And the fact that and, he thinks it's a good policy... I'm not saying it's necessarily politically no. prudent, by the way. There's every chance that Sadiq Khan could lose the next London mayoral election because of this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Narrowly, on, you know, with, with both of the Labour and Tory contenders in the, in the sort of low 40s, precisely because, uh, Carol, people in your neck of the woods and other places like it yeah, care yeah. very, very deeply yeah. about this issue and don't want to be charged £12.50 a day for driving their cars. Carol, good to speak to you. Thank you for that. Uh, we've got Jerry on the line. Jerry, morning, afternoon. Good afternoon. Hi. Uh, what's your question um, for Patrick and I? Basically, it involves what's happening in Scotland Excellent. with the uh, SNP. Couldn't have found two and, people better qualified. Go on. Uh, sort of with, it looks like they're in some degree of disarray. When Blair won his big Labour majorities, he was assured of a very large number of Scottish seats for Labour, and that subsequently disappeared with the rise of the SNP. But as the SNP may be breaking down to some extent, I'd have thought it's more likely that many, some of those seats at least are going to revert to Labour and how that's likely to affect the next general election result. Yeah, I, I, my view is that it could well be the difference between Keir Starmer getting a, a small majority and getting quite a big one if, if, if Scotland does. And I think we're always slightly guilty of thinking that the thing that has just happened is the thing that will fix forever. So we thought, you know, for instance, that Labour had massive majorities in Scotland, they could never be overturned, and now there's big SNP, you know, majorities, we think they can't be overturned. Similarly, in the West Coast, we used to think, well, it's all Lib Dem down there, big Lib Dem majorities. 2015, they all go Tory, now we're seeing them being uh, reversed. And politics is just much more volatile now, Patrick. Yeah, indeed. indeed. And look, um, at the start of this year, there was concern in the Scottish Labour Party that they didn't quite realise, before the SNP completely imploded, that the uh, that the Labour Party centrally weren't really on to how much of an opportunity there was in Scotland, and then they were talking about winning between sort of ten and twelve seats. Now they're very optimistic they could win up to twenty five, and every sort of seat they win in Scotland is a seat they don't have to win in England. Every percentage they put on in Scotland makes their job easier yeah, yeah. Uh, in England. So there is certainly a, a hope and increasingly an expectation that they will do very well, particularly in the in the central belt. Uh, and sort of uh, around, you know, some of the outer Edinburgh uh, seats, uh, you know, and you can see that from the sort of people who are running, you know, Douglas Alexander, the former cabinet minister, now the candidate for East Lothian. Yeah, yeah, yeah. trying to come back, trying to come back. Uh, good to speak to you, Joey. Thank you for that. We, we've got time for one more. Katie, morning. Oh, oh my, oh, why have I done this every person? Afternoon. C good afternoon, Katie. Good afternoon. Well, Where? it's still morning to me because I haven't had my lunch yet. So. Oh, fine. Where are you, Katie? Um, I live just outside Wellin in Hertfordshire. And what do you do? I have the best job in the world. I run, I don't make any money at it, but I run a small holding. Luckily, my other half wow. has a good job. Nice. Yes. I spend most of my time with animals, which are far more civilised than humans. Have you ever seen a big cat? No. No, it's because they don't exist. Uh, <laughs> what's your question, Katie? Um, it's, it might be partly flippant, but um, why doesn't the speaker make them ask a straight question and answer it properly? Well. Because we'd have more respect for them. Well, let's, lu let's lump in from Bill. Please make Patrick McGuire do the lathe thing. Oh, God. Don't touch the lathe. Um, increasingly, <laughs> though, increasingly, though, um, Lindsay, uh, Hoyle. Lindsay Hoyle, 
uh, not John Burko, uh, who was ne- never averse to letting people waffle on, uh, does call people out at PMQs. If they, Lee Anderson uh, at PMQs last week basically asked Rishi Sunak to condemn Keir Starmer. He said, basically said, can you ask the leader of the opposition? You know, if people ask stupid questions now, Lindsay Hall is much quicker to call them out. uh, And say that's not a proper question. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So, So I think we are... We are definitely, and Lindsay Hall has proven to be a much more interventionist speaker than I think people expected. I think, you know, he was supported by the Tories certainly because they thought he would be hands off, the anti burko but in the chair, he's proven to be much more interventionist and much sort of has much shorter patience yeah, yeah. for the antics of MPs uh, in, in that vein. Oh, well, there we are. Uh, so, um, is that my sort of answer to your question, Katie? Yes, the other thing was, um, oh. could you also, when you do an interview, when they come on the radio, could you make them answer a straight question? Because you always <laughs> ask them a straight question. I try and to. They always I try waffle. to. I do find myself, yeah. And there's always a tension between not wanting to interrupt them all the time. Uh, Katie, uh, lovely to speak to you. Enjoy your, enjoy your small holding. Thank you. Bye. <laughs> Arthur says, maybe if Patrick didn't start his statements with look, he wouldn't have been booed at his leaving do. Do I do, do, I do that? I don't know if you Well, do. look, Arthur. Um, uh... Yeah. Uh, and finally, one more question uh, from Peter. He's in a meeting, but he's listening, apparently. So if somebody, if it's a man called Peter in a meeting with you right now and he's got his headphones and he's listening to the radio, please can you ask Patrick McGuire, is he a blue or a red as a self-styled scouser? You should know that I'm not asking politically football if he needs prompting. Well, for starters, I'm not a scouser. I've never claimed to be a scouser. <laughs> if anyone from Merseyside is listening, I'm a proud wool. Uh, I am from Southport and I will, you know, never wrongly identify as a scouser. I have no right to identify as a scouser, although, you know, when I went to the University of London, people acted as if I was from Norris Green and not the sort of uh, leafy streets of Birkdale. Uh, I'm a red. I'm a Liverpool season ticket holder. Blah, blah, Um, blah! And that brings us to the end of today's episode of the podcast. Don't forget to hit subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. And let me know what you think. You can email me, matt at times.radio. And uh, lovely to hear from you about the podcast. But for now, for me, Matt Jolly, it's goodbye. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.